Communication specialists at Buckle Suite help artists and institutions imagine a world where every note resonates and every performance is a masterpiece. By combining their passion for the arts with over 20 years of experience in amplifying the voices of the performers and arts institutions, Amanda Sweet and Buckle Suite are driven by the belief that every performance deserves a spotlight and every artist deserves to be heard. Buckle Suite offers publicity, social media management, digital marketing, event planning, and video production services to a spectrum of clients in the arts. Explore what Buckle Suite can do for you at bucklesuite.com. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. I appreciate y'all joining me here again. Shout out to the returning and longtime listeners, and shout out to those of you who are new here, or relatively new. Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize classical music by centering dialogues and perspectives that shine a different light on how to approach and engage the genre, even all the way down to recontextualizing the use of the phrase classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, and to donate to the cause, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. Dr. Marcus Garrett joins me today. He's one of the big thought leaders in the choral world, who I'm excited to introduce y'all to a little later in the show. Following my chat with Marcus, I'm going to talk about old Lenny Bernstein for a few minutes. But for right now, we got to go down to Texas. So longtime listeners might remember uh, Bassoon Gate, what a lot of people <laughs> refer to as Bassoon Gate. I'll put a link in the description of this episode to refresh your memories. But long story short, a bassoonist did a clinic for the state's music education conference a couple years back, and he cited socioeconomic status as an important point to consider when recruiting bassoonists. That was one of the big issues that folks had uh, with that, along with some other things that just did not serve equity um, in the in the space of music education. Now, as a bassoonist who made a career out of playing that instrument for many years, I kind of get what he's going for because it is an expensive instrument itself. And then you got to talk about reeds and buying cane and all of these knives and tools, but it still landed incredibly flat. And there was a lot of backlash. I mean, I, and I think the backlash was kind of well-deserved, if you really have to ask my opinion, cause and effect. Now, this was pre-recorded, this clinic, so a lot of the blame was also thrown at the Texas Music Educators Association for letting this go through their channels. Anyway, that adds a little bit of context um, of for what the state of Texas has been doing when it comes to music education, and they're at it again. Now, there isn't an official press release or news article um, that I can cite, at least not uh, as of right now, this date. So I'm going to link a Twitter thread instead that sort of outlines what's going on. There's a woman named Alicia Lee. I've actually included her music here on Triloquy and in a number of my broadcast radio programs. She's a superstar, oh my gosh, in the choral world, and uh, was rightfully invited uh, to lead sessions at the Texas Choral Directors Association uh, conference that's coming up. Well, in Texas fashion, members of the association were a little concerned about her so-called critical race theory promotion and her Black Lives Matter agenda. Now, since learning about this issue, um, Alicia Lee herself posted a message to her Instagram that I thought it would be good for us to take a listen to together here. 2024. And I got to tell you that as a daughter,
Earlier this week, the Texas Choral Directors Association posted a vague message that there were concerns about me conducting in Texas in 2024. And I got to tell you that as a daughter of Texas, I was born there. I find it incredibly scary and dangerous for TCDA to post a cryptic message that has led to people imagining a great mystery about what behaviors I may have engaged in that are concerning. And it's called into question who I am as a person and my reputation. So I'm sharing the concerns as they were shared with me by TCDA directly in a series of letters from members. The concern was that my national work for years to advance anti-racism in arts communities with students and teachers by the thousands, that that work and me have no place in Texas. And I'm proud of my work and I stand by it because I know that the work that I've done has equipped students and educators and teaching artists all across the country to dismantle oppressive systems and traditions in classrooms and schools and to embrace equity and inclusion and creativity. The concerns as they were shared with me were concerns that my work, that my research, that my presentations align with critical race theory, that they uplift the Black Lives Matter movement and intersectionality. And of course they do. There were concerns that my work and lived experience has no place in Texas, has no place with students and families there, has no place in any district in Texas. The concerns had turned to action and folks were organizing, calling, petitioning to have me removed as the conductor for TCDA's All-State Choir in 2024. And so my heart too has been heavy. In removing my name for consideration to continue with TCDA this season, I missed the opportunity to meet and engage with new young artists in Texas and to make beautiful music with them. However, I go where I am welcomed, wanted, and celebrated. I go where folks are ready to have exciting conversations about inclusion, diversity, equity, racial justice, black liberation, and more. I had a great phone call with TCDA's executive committee where they apologized for their colleagues and understood my decision to step back. And this communication and their silence since publishing it has been a surprise and it is not okay. For these concerns and the cryptic communications from TCDA to leave me being questioned about my integrity, 
about my work with young people, about my education level, it's not okay. And for folks to remain silent, when a little truth telling will do, is not okay. You're asking, well, what can I do? This is that moment. If you stood up in 2020 and had a black square that said Black Lives Matter, these are the moments. Protect black women. Don't allow institutions that we love and cherish and respect in our choral community to cast a shadow on people like me who've been doing this work on behalf of the beloved community that we all are hoping to build as a part of our choral community. When we speak up, believe us and speak out and support us and don't allow us to be thrown away in silence. So I'll let y'all form whatever opinions y'all want to there. But what I think is important to note is that only some of us go through things like this. It's become a core part of my consciousness to understand that our musical infrastructures are built in a way that make it possible for some people to experience little to no dissonance or challenge in their careers and in their trajectories, while others of us are all but thrown away as Alicia said there, and this is personal for me, Musical America recently released their top 30 professionals for the year. And when I look at some of the faces on that list, I can't help but to think about what must be behind that being affable or respectable enough in the eyes of our systems to be lauded in that way. And what is actually behind the scenes and the people that are being oppressed and the heads that are being stepped on for the sake of these institutions to put up the people that they think are the best or the most appropriate or whatever. And that goes for people of all genders and all shades. Because of the reputation that I've built for myself as a decolonial musical professional, at least someone who's working toward decolonization, there are certain rooms and certain people that I just don't get to engage anymore. And I have seen that shift over the course of my career. But maybe you get to engage some of those spaces. If you aren't going to bat and doing something with your platform or you know, in line with your institution to support Alicia Lee in this moment, you're a part of the problem. And there's really no nuance and no gray area there as far as I'm concerned. If you're listening to this, you now know what's going on with her and what's happening in the state of Texas when it comes to music education, and she needs your support. Stand in solidarity with equity and make sure that your institution or even you as an individual is publicly seen as being in complete opposition to what the Texas Choral Directors Association has done. I'll also link that video uh, that we just listened to in case you like some more information, but this is a really serious issue and there's no playing on the sidelines with this. You're either with progress or or you're against it. TCDA is against progress. Alicia Lee is for progress. I'm for progress. Choose which side you're going to be on. And I know that, you know, this whole picking sides thing is how we get into a lot of trouble. But this is an area where I think there is some objective right and wrong that needs to be engaged. So I hope that you'll do what you can to be a part of this conversation, be a part of this movement in supporting Alicia Lee. All right. And with that, I think we'll transition here into my chat with Dr. Marcus Garrett. So Marcus teaches in Texas himself. He's associate professor of choral studies at the University of North Texas, um, and he's been in the spotlight a lot when it comes to not just choral music, but black 
choral music specifically. So he and I chat about his life, his trajectory, his thoughts and views on how black choral music can be engaged correctly and lots more. Uh, to get us into our chat, I'm going to shine a light on Alicia Lee. In season one of a public radio show that I produced for KVNO called The Sound of 13, uh, I included an Alicia Lee composition called Say Her Name. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that here to get us into my chat with Dr. Marcus Garrett. Hope y'all enjoy. Music is super important because it is it for all intents and purposes it's really where all of this started i mean before we had the symphony orchestras before opera was a thing we had choral music i mean i love opera no shade to any of my solo friends or anything <laughs> like that i want to make sure that it's very clear but i have a definite bias and choral music for many, even of the soloists, choral music was where they got their start because mm -hmm. they were singing in a middle school choir or high school choir or church choir, college choir, you name it, that most of them were doing that. So it, it has historic and historical value for solo singers and many composers. Even like if they've written vocal music, they probably got their start from being in a choir. And we're definitely going to uh, dive into the specificity of Black music and Black choral music. But even just generally speaking, globally, across culture, choirs have existed far before there were institutional examples of musicking and, and music making. Um, is there some significance there for you, just sort of the on the ground, grassroots nature of choral music from that historical lens? I wouldn't say necessarily for myself, except for the fact that once I got to actually sing in what I would call a real choir, then there was something special for me. I enjoyed my time in churches singing in like praise teams. I did enjoy that. And the first church that I remember us being a part of, we did, we only had praise teams, uh, no choirs and that kind of stuff. So I didn't really know what choral music or really what a choir was until later. And I wonder, I want to pull on a thread that you just uh, exposed real choir. I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about what you mean by that. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that, but um I guess there might have been some people who would have considered some of the experiences, some of the music making experiences from my childhood as being a choir. And I mean, a choir is just a multiple uh, is a group of multiple people. So some would say that a group of eight could be a choir if that's what they do, whether Voices eight. I don't think they consider themselves to be a choir, but you have some middle schools where they only have eight kids singing. So are they an octet or are they a choir? Is it really, mm -hmm. I guess it depends on the function 
of it. So I I should backtrack and I wouldn't say that it was real choir, but I, I mean I everything that was called a choir for me was a choir. And I think it is a, an important conversation, though, because there are a lot of people who have some understanding of what a professional orchestra is or any sort of professional music making, but not necessarily a professional choir. Is is that a thing? Oh, absolutely. So we have groups like uh, Conspirare, led by Craig Keller Johnson, or the Santa Fe Desert Chorale under Josh Haberman, or the, um, down in Miami. Um, I... Why can I not think of this? Right, um, Seraphic Fire. There we go. Seraphic oh, course, Fire. Yeah. Those are three, and the LA Master Chorale. Like that is a large group of people who make some, you know, good money doing that. And you can even make the transfer into opera. I mean, the Met Opera Chorus. Those folks make some pretty good money doing what they do and performing for all of those productions. So yes, professional choral singing is a thing, and I know several people who. Aside from the groups like Contus and Chanticleer, which are full-time with benefits groups that rehearse five to six hours a day before they go on their tours, aside from those groups in the States, the rest of them are project-based. And you'll have some people who sing, who are on the roster for three, four, sometimes five of those groups. And it's just based on their schedule as in as a solo individual and uh, the group's schedule which ones they can do and some some of them are gone 20 to 25 days out of the year because they're gigging all over the country sounds like a pretty good gig if you can manage to get it <laughs> you know it it has its advantages because definitely when it's time for you to take a vacation and you want to go have your little two weeks in italy you've racked up quite a few sky miles or um, loyalty points with American where you get all your upgrades and your free flights and everything. So there are some advantages to it. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the difference between the practice of choral music and the study of choral music as you've, you know, entrenched yourself into so, uh, such a long time. I wonder if you could speak to some of those key differences. Well, I guess I've never really heard anyone refer to it that way, but the the practice of choral music I see as the experiences that people have and what are you doing? So as a conductor, it's deciding the repertoire and leading the rehearsals and having the performances. And if you are in other areas, you do you have to have your donor dinners and that kind of stuff to raise mm -hmm. funds for your organization. Um, and the study of it, people generally are going to see, see it as being either the summer intensive weeks or symposia or being in a graduate program. Typically. Now, there are some institutions where their undergraduate experience gets to be very specific, like here at UNT, where the students get to study specifically choral music education. And so they're in choirs, quite a few of them. There's learning a lot of choral rep. They learn how to teach it and those kinds of things. Uh, but in, with the graduate studies, you know, you have your conducting lessons and you sing an ensemble. Mm -hmm. You take your methods classes and your choral literature classes and private lessons, maybe, or groups time, like in a master class style situation. So there's, yeah, I've, I see that as the, the study of, of choral music making. 
how much of your development um, has involved really learning how to do some of those things that you've mentioned, the donor dinners, the, you know, uh, uh, getting board members to contribute X, Y, and Z, you know, the non-musical aspects of being in the profession. Unfortunately, those non-performance aspects were scant conversations. Hmm. They happen so infrequently and very rarely do they actually happen in a class or some sort of classroom situation. It was really just um, conversations you may have with a teacher or you're at a conference and you're in a session or you just happen to get a community chorus gig and then you find out, oh, I have to do all of this stuff. And so you talk to your friends who have already done this how do I do this? What am I supposed to say and do? So there may be a few that have a few institutions that will have either like a choral seminar where they get to talk about the non-musical aspects of the profession. Um, I think maybe there was a time when Don McNally was, I believe he's at Northwestern. And uh, maybe while he was there because of his time, I mean, he's still with The Crossing, another project-based professional choir. And I think with his time at Northwestern, maybe he did speak a little bit more about that because of his experience. We don't have that many that I know of, and I don't know of all the professional choral conductors out who have groups like Santa Fe Desert Corral and The Crossing, where they also have graduate programs where they can teach that kind of stuff. Mm. to their graduate cohorts on a regular basis. So I, I could be very much wrong, but just based on my limited experience, I've not, I've not heard much about that. On the job training is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. OT, was it OTJT? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many, many instrumentalists on the instrumental side, including myself, you know, we were only given the opportunity to think about music by Black composers in relative recent years. The youngsters coming up through conservatory now know Margaret Bonds and Florence Price and those people, but those weren't names that were a part of our training. I wonder how that reality relates to what you've seen over the course of your career when it comes to choral education. Is Black music more foundational to the choral experience than to the instrumental ex experience? Well, it, my experience is a little different than some others because I went to a historically Black college mm -hmm. and it was there that what decades before my time, the HBCUs and the predominantly Black churches were the only places where Black composers were primarily able to get their music done. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as accepted for a variety of reasons. So being at Hampton University, I learned about so many of these composers. And it wasn't until I left that wonderful Mecca, <laughs> you can say, for the study of Black composers and just specifically with the choral music. Um, I left there and then went to uh, an institution that did not have as many people that looked like me. And it was in the conversations with my colleagues, my graduate school colleagues, that I realized, oh, they don't know any of these composers that I know. They, 
I had an undergraduate student actually say to me, oh, I didn't know that Black composers had done anything other than spirituals. Mm -hmm. And while I was upset at first, I had to remind myself that that student only knew what his teachers taught him. And his teachers only taught him what they had been taught. And when we look at the, the stalwart music history textbooks, they had the smallest mention of William Grant still or Scott Joplin. Maybe William Dawson with his Negro Folk Symphony, maybe. But those were probably not happening as often. So I'm grateful that in the last three years, I hate that we had to have uh, someone's death to be the impetus for this all, but I'm grateful that we are in a place now where so many more conductors and educators are understanding the value of this music as foundational and where the students should learn that music just as much as they do the other composers because just because Bach was influential to to Mendelssohn and just because he's influential to so many of us now because we have been told that we have to look at his music to study theory. I'm grateful that there are organizations or just individuals who are saying, hey, here's some piano music, here's some choral music, here's some vocal music by other composers that you can use to talk about Neapolitan chords or German six. Like it's out there. So you you just have to find it. Well, you really don't have to find it. You just have to do music. (laughs) It's all there. (laughs) You you remind me, you know, my, uh, I did music education for my uh, bachelor's uh, before going into bassoon performance. And I remember from my licensure exam, there was a listening portion and um, I had to do the Roman numeral analysis of a Gloria Estefan song. And of course I could do it, but I guess I, I had never added one and one together in that way to realize that this is learning that can happen outside of the tradition that has been codified for so long. With that in yeah. mind, I wonder how you balance, you know, teaching black music versus the tradition. Uh, have you just completely thrown Bach and all those people out the window? Is it a mix? How do you engage it? No, even even though I have no problem admitting that I am not the biggest fan of Bach, I really only like the choral music that I have performed because, it, I mean, it still is just, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, except for his keyboard music. Now I can listen to that all day long. <laughs> be a good fugue in a minor mode and I'm a happy man. I will listen to it all day. But the choral music is sometimes just like, what? But I love St. John Passion since I've sung it. I, I love Lobitsch Dan Herrn because I've sung it and have conducted and am teaching Jesu Freud right now. So no, I don't get rid of, of that stuff. I mean, I spent two and a half days maybe talking about box motets in my choral literature classes at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. But I was intentional from the moment I got that job to be sure that I talked about the others. And I always told my students, you're going to get quite a few more Black composers from me than you will from other people. And it'll mean that I will have to not talk about some other groups of people. But that's because if I'm going to tell people that this is my research area, I have to also put it into my teaching. So you, I mean, nobody got upset by it. They were grateful that they were able to learn for three and a half weeks on spirituals because they were like, I never even got a day on spirituals. It was just what I learned in my, in choir. 
and that kind of stuff. So I've been intentional about just integrating it. So now with my private conducting lessons, now that I'm at UNT, um, one of the pieces I did was by Leslie Adams that I assigned to two students. And one student said, we should do this piece with all of these meter changes instead of Britain's Rejoice in the Lamb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not complaining about that revelation. Now, whether they are just trying to do it to get a good grade or not is irrelevant. They said it, so that's all that matters. No, <laughs> it is there for that reason. It's, it's good music and it is a challenge. So I'm, I'm grateful that I'm just able to integrate it without having to necessarily talk about it. Like yep. there were very few of the pieces, of uh, the composers whose music I assigned to my students in lessons where I specifically had to say, this is a black composer. I mean, they did their own work and they realized stuff. So sometimes we would have conversations about how their lived experiences influenced it. But other times I was like, I don't think their lived experience as a black person had anything to do with this anthem. It's just an anthem that sounds like something Daniel Pinkham could have written. Sure. You know, and that conversation is interesting because one of the things that I engage a lot in the world of radio is the use of the word Negro when we're talking about mm. spirituals. You know, should the, the question is always, well, can I just say spirituals? Do I have to say Negro spirituals? I'm a little uncomfortable with that word Negro. Well, what, what's your take on that question? Again, considering what you've said about sometimes it's just music, sometimes it's lived experience that is showcased through the music. What do we do with this phrase Negro spirituals? I understand why it's uncomfortable or how it can be uncomfortable for certain people. And I have a couple friends who identify as black, just like me. And they don't like that term because they say that it's old. My bias is that it's an historic term or, or an historical term. I don't know which is the correct word, but it doesn't matter. It is a term that, that has survived history and has historical value. And in some respects, it using that older term can force people to think backward. Mm -hmm. I choose that term because it was used prominently during a specific time. And I think about how, while there are some people who are uncomfortable with it now, during the first part of the 20th century, like it was actually, a, I've read that it was offensive for, some people felt that it was offensive to be called Black. Negro was a, a term of pride for mm -hmm. them. So reading so many things written by R. Nathaniel Dett or John Work, you, you see, or any of the John Works, <laughs> I guess I should say, you will see that they always use the term Negro. So I use it to pay homage to the ones who collected the music, the ones who wrote about the music, which helps inform how I create it. I'm not a fan of the term African-American spiritual because they were not African-Americans. Hmm. I said they were not considered Americans. They weren't even considered people. They were property. So if they were not African-Americans or they weren't Americans, that means they weren't citizens. If they weren't citizens, then we can't add the descriptor African to it I don't think we can retroactively grant citizenship. Now, that's just my take on it. <laughs> and I choose not to say spiritual by itself a good number of times. There are times when I just want to say very quickly spirituals and people understand. But 
at least once I'm going to say Negro spirituals because there are other types of spirituals. I do know that there are like Appalachian spirituals. There are West Indian spirituals. There are white spirituals. I've seen one or two scores. I didn't keep them. I didn't really (laughs) care, but I did see it. (laughs) And I'm not saying it's bad music. I'm just like, I've just never do that. I'm going to do the Negro spirituals because that's what I love so much. And so the term spirituals can technically, it does include all of those different sub-genres of spirituals. But we know that most people, when they hear the term spirituals, they're thinking of Negro spirituals and it is quicker uh, to say that. Yeah, it's funny. In in preparation, I'm seeing uh, uh, the Malcolm X opera at the Met here in a few days. So I've been reading the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X and, you know, just engaging that word Negro in his context has been interesting. And then I'm sitting here in front of you wearing a bow tie. So there are other things that I'm thinking about, but (laughs) that are unrelated. Um, (laughs) But when you when you talk about uh, people who think that word Negro is an old word that should remain in the past. You know, I I can't help but to think about um, uh, Burley, Harry Thacker Burley, when he was really trying to maintain the spiritual and there were so many Black people trying to keep the music itself in the past, considering it slave music. Is this thinking that's been completely eliminated? Are there examples of that sort of thinking still existing today? I wonder what your experiences there are. Well, when it comes to Burley, I also think about R. Nathaniel Dett, who I said he wrote a lot about Black music, specifically Black folk music. And he called it Negro folk music because that was the term that they that they used back then. And he talked about and I, I mentioned him because he's my favorite composer, I wrote a dissertation on him. And I read a lot of what he wrote about music. And he said once that. There, one, even though he was Canadian, his grandmother was enslaved Mm. uh, at a time. And she sang spirituals to him, but he never had a connection to them. He never felt anything. It was just like, all right, my grandmother's singing them. And it wasn't until he went to graduate school when he heard the Niesel String Quartet play a quartet by Dvorak that one of those melodies reminded him of his grandmother Mm. and the songs that she used to sing. And he remembered that during his formative years, while he was in the States, more more specifically, he noticed that there were several Black people during that time who wanted to distance themselves from spirituals because it was, as you said, a reminder of the past. And they were like, okay, we, we are quote unquote free and we're trying to better ourselves. We're trying to basically assimilate into society, just integrate ourselves as much as possible. And that is too much of a connection to the time of enslavement. They also were going to churches that performed hymns, uh, spirit, I'm sorry, hymns, anthems, motets, oratorios, and cantatas. So they, mm-hmm. they were used to that as we would, some would say, high level church music. The spirituals were seen as less than because they were extemporaneous in style. So Det was like, well, this music I'm now remembering is really good and I want to keep it. But you've got all of these black people who don't want it anymore. So he said that there was a peculiar problem. And he realized that to solve that peculiar problem, you could do as Dvorak said, use 
those um, spirituals melodies and Native American melodies to create an American sound. So he decided to use Black folk music as the source material for his choral works. Not all of them, but uh, several of them, namely his oratorio, his magnum opus, The Ordering of Moses, based on Go Down Moses. You also have the Chariot Jubilee, which was written a few decades prior, but used Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And then several pieces that he called anthems and motets. Some of them he used as a fugue. He would use a, a folk tune as a fugue. So we saw it back then. Black people now, of in my experience, are not trying to distance themselves from spirituals. We have many groups who love doing this music. The thing that happens now is... And I've said this to many people, even had two conversations about this with my students yesterday. What we have now is a growing number of non-Black choral musicians who, in their most inclusive heart and spirit, they say, well, I don't think that non-Black people should be singing it because it's not our music. And it's like, oh, dear Lord. Okay. I understand where you're going and I'm grateful that you are thinking about other people and you don't want to offend and you understand the history of race relations in this country. But there are times when, um, and I say this was all the love in the world, there are some times when liberal white people create problems that don't exist <laughs> for other people. And I'm like, you are getting upset for people when they're not even upset. <laughs> and so I've had to have a number of conversations with choir directors and subsequently with their choirs because those students, predominantly white, say, we don't think we should do spirituals because we are not, we don't come from that culture. And I have, I, there, there's hesitancy on my part when it talks about like who owns music or whose culture it's from. I say, I don't own spirituals just because I'm Black. I didn't know anything about spirituals until I started singing them. And actually, when I started reading about them, hmm. I had to be taught this music versus the original creators, the original folk composers that Eileen Southern calls them. Those original folk composers, it was their music. So I don't always see it as necessarily cultural music. I see it as specifically the music of that first person who sang Swing Low Sweet Chariot or Deep River. It's their music. It just happened to get passed on. They didn't have a way of writing it down. And because we don't know who the first person was for almost all of these spirituals, we found out two of them though. But out of the 6,000 spirituals that I've been told that we have, um, we don't know who any of those people were. So the music is owned by them. Just like any piece that I have written is not owned by Black people because I wrote it. Even if it's about even if it's from my experience as a Black person, it's my music. Nobody else is. So I tell people, hey, let's think about this as Arne Nathaniel Dett did. He said that in spirituals, we find the things that are common to, quote, all bards of all races and times. That people talk about loss. They talk about heartache. They talk about joy. They talk about um, having a faith in a divine providence. I think that was the term that, uh, the phrase that he used. Like, it doesn't matter how somebody identified. They can find something in that music. And, uh, oh, and the other thing is, when you think about Burley, Dead, Hall Johnson, William Dawson, 
all of them gave this music to publishers so that the music could be performed by everyone. It didn't say on the score, it can only be performed by Black people or Negro people, as they would have said. It sure. didn't say that. They gave it so that it could be done by everybody. We love William Dawson. Look at the top of the score of Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. Who was that dedicated to? John Finley Williamson and the Westminster Choir. I'm sorry, but in 1940, it didn't get much wider than that. So if he could, <laughs> if he could write that piece for them, why can't we do it now? I mean, Stacey Gibbs, Moses Hogan, Brandon Waddles, like they were commissioned by white choirs to arrange spirituals for them. And they did. And then the pieces got published. So let's do it. You can tell I have opinions on this. <laughs> well, in the same way that, for example, I, I am as an individual not barred from singing, let's say, German singspiel. I probably have no business singing it unless I know what I'm doing. Otherwise, I'm I'm disrespecting the tradition and the music. I feel like there has to be something there when it comes to the spiritual as well. You know, how what is the or what would you say is the right way for a black person or a non-black person to approach the performance of a spiritual toward actually respecting its history and what it is in American context? First and foremost, it's about education. It doesn't have to be a formal education. I'm not saying you got to go to uh, an institution and take a class on this kind of stuff. That is not it. We have so many resources now. So many resources. Now, people before, they were learning it. It was very experiential. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were literally in there, and that's how they learned it. But because we don't have as many um, institutions, and not, I'm not speaking specifically about institutions of higher education, but just any type of institution, whether it's a community institution or religious, we had so many spaces back then where that kind of stuff was just taught and you just figured it out by being around it. And because we are so much more diverse in our experiences now, we have to use technology and technology is not always electronic, but we have many great electronic resources. So there are YouTube videos, there are podcasts that talk about all this kind of stuff, but you can get down to the original technology, which was what? Paper, books. We have so many books on this stuff. Um, uh, Andre Thomas wrote what many consider to be like a, a definitive contemporary book on spirituals. And whenever people ask me, can we call them Negro spirituals? I said, you like Andre Thomas, right? Look at his book, Way Over in Beulah Land, Understanding and Performing What the Negro Spiritual. <laughs> so I start there. You got Felissa Barber, who recently published um, her the adaptation of her dissertation into a book. It's all about a linguistic approach to, and she calls it African-American spiritual. So let's see, we get different terminology, but we're all talking about the same thing. And then you have what honestly was the most transformative book for me was Eileen Southern, I mean, sorry, Eileen Gunther's In Their Own Words, Slave Life and the Power of Spirituals, I think is the subtitle. And this is written by what? A white woman. And I tell people all the time, I learn more about how I can interpret spirituals by reading a book by a white woman. Now, granted, she just took the slave narratives and she has all these block quotes so that we can actually hear literally in their own words what their experience was because it was that experience that birthed this music that we appreciate and value and love so much. So you just have to go out and learn. You, you read, 
you look at videos, you listen to recordings. So the Tuskegee Institute Choir was conducted by William Dawson, performing a lot of his music, but also music of other Black composers. Listen to how they were singing. Go listen to the Hall Johnson Chorale sing. Listen to old recordings of the Hampton Choir or the even the Fisk Quartet from 1901, I think it was 1908 to 1910. I remember 15, almost 20 years ago, buying CDs. Do we remember what those are? <laughs> but I bought three CDs of the Fisk Quartet singing only, I think mostly spiritual, but maybe some work songs. That is a different way of internalizing and interpretation. And then more contemporarily, I think I tell everybody, if you're going to do a Moses Hogan spiritual, the first thing you need to do after buying the music for every member in your choir, you then need to go listen to Moses Hogan's recording. He recorded his music so people could know how to do his music. I fully believe that if Bach were alive now, he would have recorded everything that he had done so that people knew how he wanted it. But back then they had treatises. So everybody wrote about how you're supposed to do stuff. But our treatises now are what? Albums. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I think, you know, there's so much that we can talk about when it comes to what spirituals and that tradition gave birth to. Um, but I also think it's important to make sure that we're making those delineations so that we aren't mistaking a blues tune for a spiritual or a gospel tune for a spiritual. What's your approach to engaging that conversation, helping people understand that, I don't know, never would have made it, is not a spiritual, even though there, is, there are connections to the spiritual that you can make with that type of music? Yes. So first thing I tell people is that spirituals, and I just say this unashamedly, spirituals are the grandfather, grandmother, grandparent. <laughs> Let's say that. The grandparent of all Black American music. Like we can see how it all goes back to that because that was the first Black music that was created in the States and what we now call the United States. So I, I start there. And uh, it, like when it comes to gospel music, I talk about how I learned this from Raymond Wise in his dissertation that was tracing the history of gospel music from 1900 to 2000. And in there, he talks about how we get gospel music as a combination of the spirituals that had been done in the field, which then made their way into the churches that Black people finally were able to like actually have for themselves. But it's combining that with the Black hymnody and white hymnody, and then the jazz and blues that those musicians were doing, or instrumentalists, I should say. I guess I could say musicians, because, you know, singers and instrumentalists were doing on Saturday night. So he talks about how Saturday night it was baby, 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 and then on Sunday morning it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It all sounded <laughs> the same. And it's the reason why. So many people during the turn of the 20th century and then the mid 20th century with um, Andre Crouch's Oh Happy Day, people were just like, wait, this sound, this doesn't sound like church. It doesn't sound like Jesus. But now that we're so far removed from it, it's like this is gospel and this is what this music sounds like. But it's just important to understand that it all goes back to that that original uh, that that original music. And I. Did I answer the question fully? Oh, oh, for for sure, for sure. You okay. know, all all of the um, idiomatic sounds of black music and black experiences. That that's my segue into asking you about your work <laughs> um, with non-idiomatic choral music of black composers. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and what your findings have been. 
So my findings are not anything big or transformative. The reason why people now talk about non-idiomatic choral music of Black composers, and I'm grateful that they do, because like you said earlier, we are, many educators are changing what we consider to be the canon. We're changing what we discuss in our theory classes and music history classes and choral lit and in our ensembles, and I'm grateful for it all. Non-idiomatic choral music of Black composers was a term, the non-idiomatic, that term specifically, was given to me by a classmate when I was in graduate school. Because I get to Florida State, he asked me in a car, like he asked many people when he first meets them, who are your three favorite composers? And I think, I, I know I mentioned Arne Nathaniel Dett, and I can't remember, I may have mentioned Undine Smith-Moore and Handel. And he was like, oh, it's so interesting that you would have two Black composers. And I mean, and he knew who those composers were, thankfully, but he will tell you that he knew then, and this was like within probably two weeks of us meeting, he was like, I knew then that Marcus is going, he loves Black composers. <laughs> and everything, I was talking so much about Black composers when I was working on my doctorate, so much so that my teacher said, um, what if I tell you that you can't study a Black composer for a year? I was like, well, I just wouldn't do it while I'm in school, but you can't control what I do when I go home. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I realized in both of my graduate programs that people just didn't know about this original music of Black composers. They knew about the spirituals, gospel, and jazz, but they didn't know about the music that didn't have any of those influences. So I just talked about it a little bit more and more. And uh, I was not the first. There were several Choral Journal articles from the 70s. I mean, you can talk, uh, Roland Carter, DeWalla Simmons, Burke, uh, Carl Harris. Um, I mean, just, I could name so many people. They were talking about this. Social media wasn't a big thing. So what happened, just making it very quick, The uh, I decided I needed to create a website because it was past time. I had so many friends who had been bugging me about it. Fine. So I started a website. I chatted with a friend. I was like, hey, I think since I've had a few sessions on this topic, I want to put a spreadsheet on my page. And he had talked about it. I was like, I mean, I've been talking about it a lot. So are you okay if I go ahead and do this? He was like, yeah, that's fine. So I put it on my website. I tell people I have a website. Don't mention it. Don't mention that specific page. And maybe three months go by and somebody tags me on Facebook. Oh, I found this page. And then I get tagged again and tagged again. And next thing you know, it is just all over the place. And everybody's like, non-idiomatic, non-idiomatic, non-idiomatic. And I'm like, oh, well, this is nice. Oh, I guess I got to keep up with this now. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the things that, what what have I found from all of this? I've learned of new composers that are new to me. Um, like Siobhan Lloyd, I had, somebody just said, hey, you don't have this guy on your page. You should check this out. And then what? I did one of his pieces last year. I was very happy about that. Um, I was then able to like talk to, because people had seen my name, I can then like contact this publisher and say, hey, is there any way I can like just take a look at this piece that nobody has done. And they're like, yeah, here you go. And I'm like, oh, it's great. They let me perform it. Let me make additions of this music. It then gets re-promoted. Or other publishers are like, is there anything in our catalog that we should bring back? And I'm like, yes, here's a piece. Here's a piece. Here's a piece. Do you? Is there anything we need to fix with the score? We will let you do that. I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. So more and more people are just are open 
are open to exploring this music and I'm just happy to see people talking about it. And yeah, it's just wonderful. And how can people take a look at and check out this database that you've compiled? Well, I mean, easily just go to my website, mlagmusic.com. You go to the research tab, you'll see non-idiomatic choral music of Black composers. And on there, I give a brief definition of it. Every three months, I have uh, six pieces that I switch out as like a recommended starting point. I have a few important composers up there and like their dates and something important things about them, like Undine Smith-Moore and Jose Maritio Nunes Garcia. And then I've got a spreadsheet, just a very simple Google spreadsheet that has composer name, the title, voicing, instrumentation, genre, and publisher. And people can um, add that to their Google spreadsheet so they always have access to it and can open it as much as they want. I put other resources below for organ music, solo vocal, piano, string, all that kinds of any resources that I found. <gasps> now that I think about it, my friend Leah Claiborne, I need to add her to pia- two volumes of piano music by Black composers that she created with Hal Leonard for beginning through like intermediate uh, piano students. I need to add that. I'm putting that note down. Thank you so much for this reminder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) So yeah, that's where you can go for all of that stuff. (laughs) Well, I wanted to uh, wrap up with uh, a question that I I couldn't help but to bring to the front as I was preparing for this conversation. You've talked with a lot of people. You've been very outspoken in many ways. And when you get into the comment sections of some of these things, you know, there are lots of opinions and you yourself have acknowledged that there are, you know, different opinions within black communities when it comes to spiritual versus Negro spiritual versus African-American spiritual. You know, we, we know that black folks are not a monolith at the same time. I'm always thinking about ways we can, and to some degree, get on the same page, especially when it comes to classical music and the continued marginalization of Black music under that umbrella term, classical. So I wonder, you know, how, in your opinion, how can our different and maybe even sometimes opposite approaches and opinions surrounding this music be pointed in the same direction, be pointed toward the same goals? How do we, again, in your opinion, how do we work more toward unity? when it comes to Black music, Black classical music, despite our very different opinions and approaches and experiences? I think about that meme that was going around for a couple years when there were some people who were upset about people saying Black Lives Matter. Hmm. It was about the movement or just stating a fact that Black lives do matter. It was like, well, what about the others? And they would then have a meme that's like, well, if this person's house is on fire, are you that person that's saying, well, what about my house? Well, your house is not the one that's dealing with anything right now. And so while my research has highlighted groups of people, it's not to say that we have to get rid of it. Like I said earlier, I'm not saying get rid of Bach. There are many things to learn from him. Um, I mean, there are some people we probably maybe should get rid of their music because it was very problematic. <laughs> but this this uh, research, like, I mean, I cannot do it all. And I have done this out of sheer love and joy for the music and for the composers and for the representation. 
And in the same way that I'm grateful that I've had people reach out to me and said, hey, I want to do the same thing that you're doing, but for composers of uh, Chinese descent or Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican composers and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yes, I'm so glad that you were inspired by it because I can't do it for every group of people. And we could have one for Italian composers. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong. My thing is, why are you doing it? For me, it's to make sure that more people get included. I've never said we got to get rid of all this other stuff. It's just how can we include more people? So I do it out of an inclusive spirit. I do it out of a spirit of love for as many people as possible, even people that I might disagree with. So there are many folks, and I, yeah, even early on, I saw several comments saying that this was polarizing. You and, and this was coming from people who identified the same way I do. They were just like, why are we talking about it this way? And I'm like, well, nobody was talking about it before. Mm. Like it wasn't being discussed at all. So instead of trying to tear people down, how can we build everybody up? My colleague, Jessica Napolis, tells all of the uh, choral music ed students at the beginning of the uh, academic year, and it's mostly to the first year students because they're just getting here, but that the rest of the students have heard this before, but it's a nice reminder. I think it was JFK who says what well, a rising tide lifts all ships or something to mm-hmm. that effect. This is what this is. Like we are just helping each other just grow and grow and grow and just and, and lifting each other up and we we can all do it and I, that's why I love talking about not just black composers but I mean I I, I do the music of, of women composers all the time because I feel that it is important and it, yeah that's enough I don't have to say anything else <laughs> That's a spiritual called Sit Down Servant Arranged by Dr. Marcus Garrett. Huge shout out to him and thanks to him for joining me here on Triloquy. Be sure to check out his work and his other interviews if you're interested in what's going on in the world of black choral music and choral music overall. Really enjoyed that chat and hope you did as well. Okay, so yesterday I posted on my social media that I had received some Bernstein tea Well, (laughs) with this new movie out uh, in the theaters right now about his life. Uh, There's a lot coming to the top that highlights the fact that he wasn't the best person and the people who were on the ground with him are coming out of the woodwork to let us all know that the image you may see in this movie is not who the real man was. So I went back and forth (laughs) in deciding whether or not I would share what I had learned about this man. Um, And in the spirit of Bodhisattva, never disparaging, you know, I'm not going to give all the juicy details, but because at the end of the day, that doesn't really serve anyone. But what I will say is that 
someone reached out to me again, who met him on multiple occasions. Um, and they don't have a lot of nice things to say about him. This person told me stories about how he was extremely rude to people who he didn't see as someone who could help him expand his career. I was told stories about him calling young conductors um, who he considered, quote unquote, cheap, you know, those sorts of inappropriate things. And even that there were some sexual abuses that at this point are basically lost to history and only shared among folks who have had the firsthand experience with this man. Now, all that being said, the story that I think is important to tell is this one. So the person who reached out to me um, um, again on one of the occasions where he had some Bernstein um, interactions, the per uh, this person was jogging in Central Park once upon a time and heard an orchestra rehearsing. So he ran over to see what was going on. And he told me that it was Bernstein on the podium with the New York Philharmonic preparing for some sort of outdoor concert that they were throwing. Now, according to the person who was telling me this, it was obvious to him that the orchestra had no respect for Leonard Bernstein whatsoever. They were talking in between the music, not paying him any attention when he was up there waving his arms. It was described to me as if Bernstein were on the podium with middle schoolers. I mean, the orchestra simply had no respect for him whatsoever. Now, does this mean that the New York Phil was being unprofessional? Maybe. I'm sure there's some folks who would argue that, but what it also means is that one of the most famous orchestras in the world didn't have the time of day for one of the most famous conductors in the world because of the way he treated people as music professionals. I think we often get caught in the trap of only considering what the media says about us as important or meaningful and even worse, only considering what the institutions that live within the status quo say about us as truth or something useful. If someone on the ground has a complaint, that doesn't matter because they don't have all of the proper information and all sorts of, you know, gaslighting stuff that's all often thrown at folks. I've dealt with this a lot personally, seeing people uh, get a light shine on them who have personally wronged me and not being able to say anything because I'd be seen as jealous or a hater or whatever word you want to use. What I'm, you know, beginning to really learn is that impact is relative in this world, certainly in the world of music and positive reviews can be bought. That, that's just the uh, fact of the matter. Pay attention to who's backing you up and pay attention to the other people or other institutions that they back up. Maybe y'all remember the article by uh, Heather McDonald, where she's talking about how wokeness, quote unquote, is killing classical music. I'll, I'll link it in the description here just in case. You know, there were those of us who were seen by the writer of that article as part of the problem. You know, we're too woke and we're killing classical music. And then there were others of us, and by us, I mean Black folks who were used as examples of why racism isn't actually a thing in the arts. Now, if your work and legacy is being platformed as good or progressive by people who clearly have a problem with real progress, you're a part of their team. Whoever the Texas Choral Directors Association decides to go with because Alicia Lee is out of the running, they need to understand that they're seen as one of the quote-unquote good ones by an institution that hates critical black thought at the end of the day. If you dig into the pages of history, you'll learn things about Bernstein that no music educator or textbook is going to teach you, but the people knew who he was. And that's the point that I really want to lay out. Do the people know who you are? Is the legacy or impact that you're working toward acceptable and respectable to folks on the ground or only to those with the positionality to maintain the status quo, the executive directors, the famous musicians and soloists, all the big funders, all of those folks in this world? We are all oppressed and oppressor, depending on the circumstances. But at the end of the day, there are systems of real radical change. And then there are systems that make allegations, statements and promises that keep us where we are today. Who's backing you up? That's the question that I would love to leave you with. Thanks again for tuning in. It's an honor to be backed by you, the real people. And I'll talk to you all again next week. Cheers.